Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about everything scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive in scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 485 is recorded live July 30th, 2020. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where things are looking better. Uh, Mac was planning on joining us this week, but he's having a little bit of computer problems. So uh, hopefully he'll be joining us next week. And Kevin is also unavailable. So this will be a rare solo show. So it may be a little bit shorter than normal. Also want to thank everybody who's been listening and downloading the episodes. And as of tonight, I am currently caught up with all the editing. This week, I slammed out uh, four of the episodes that we had in the vault. So there's about six hours of of audio that should keep people busy for a little bit of time. Apologize for that. I usually like to have them out within a week of recording, but that one went a little bit long. Uh, we had a, a few new people tonight in the chat room, and they've uh, jumped out thinking that uh, they were part of the curse, but uh, I don't believe that to be the case. Uh, Craig also abandoned us tonight. For some reason, Craig's not working. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article up is uh, talking about a plastic pandemic. Of a glut of discarded single-use masks and gloves is washing up on shorelines and littering the seabed. Conservationists have warned that the coronavirus pandemic could spark spark a surge in ocean pollution and a galt of adding to the galt the glut of plastic waste that already threatens marine life after finding disposable mass floating like jellyfish and waterlogged latex gloves scattered across the seabeds divers have found covid waste dozens of gloves masks bottles of hand sanitizer beneath the waves in the mediterranean mixed with the usual litter of disposable cups and aluminum cans wear a mask but be careful of the disposal 129 billion face masks are disposed of every month. That is unbelievable. So what's that work? It's, it's way out. If you, what's a, what's the world population three or 4 billion. So that means that everybody in the world is disposing of, I mean, that what does it say about me? I've been reusing the same set of masks for a couple months. I mean, some of them are washable, uh, now, I guess if you're, you know, it could be including contractors and, and people are using, you know, some that are intended to be disposable, but that is an awful lot of face masks. And then Patty has partnered with a sportswear company, R, uh, Rash R, to make face masks out of plastic recovered from the ocean. Each mask sold with five replacement filters at $20.40. These Patty masks are sustainable alternative to the N95 respirator masks reserved for the frontline workers. Children's masks are available too. So far, 1,300 pounds of ocean plastic have been recycled to masks to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Uh, One thing that we've been seeing a lot in the news in the last week is talking about N95s. uh, And and they're not coming out and specifically saying it because I don't think they want to 
rile up healthcare workers. But uh, when it with the case made for wearing a mask to help prevent the spread of the disease, uh, N95 masks, if you haven't used one, they have a vent on them. So the in-air, intaking air that you breathe is being filtered, but the outtake is just going out through that vent. So it's conceivable. I mean, it's not being filtered. I mean, it's being slowed down and redirected, but it's not running through a specific filter. So uh, I'm expecting that in the next few weeks we'll be seeing more about that. There's some talks that, uh, at least here in Michigan, that they're actually going to ban those that they won't count for public. Also, there's some discussion on plastic face shields aren't going to count uh, for being used because they say it doesn't doesn't do enough to filter. Uh, and then I did see an article just in the last couple of days that uh, some are recommending uh, goggles, that a goggle or some sort of uh, something shielding your eyes also cuts down on it. So more to come on that, I'm sure. Then there was an article on microplastics on the ocean floor. They said that the highest microplastic concentration found deep down in the ocean floor, around 1.9 million pieces per square meter were found in analysis led by the University of Manchester. Tiny fragments from larger objects have been broken down in fibers from clothing and other synthetic textiles were among the items included in the contamination. The researchers believe that Due to a powerful bottom currents of the ocean, the microplastics are getting accumulated in a specific location in the ocean floor. And they're saying that these plastics are smaller than the one millimeter size. Dr. Ian Kane, who fronted the internal team, says, Imagine underwater sand dunes. Similar drift dunes are built by these currents. He said these dunes can be hundreds of meters high, tens of kilometers long, and they're among the largest sediment accumulations found in the planet predominantly they're made of very fine silt so expecting to find microplastics within them is natural every year the amount of plastic waste entering the ocean almost uh, mostly through rivers is calculated to be somewhere in the order of 4 to 12 million tons the greatest cluster of debris that washes up with the tides and floats in the gyres and the coastlines have been focused on the media headlines but considering that marine plastic budget this visible trash is considered to represent just 1% of the waste. The other 99% waste exact whereabouts are still unknown. Sleeping microbes wake up after 100 million years buried under the seafloor. Microbes found themselves buried in dirt 101.5 million years ago, back before even Tyrannosaurus rex, when Earth's biggest meeting dinosaur roamed the planet. Times passed, continents shifted, oceans rose and fell, great apes emerged, and eventually human beings evolved with the curiosity and skill to dig up those ancient cells. A Japanese lab of researchers has brought in a single-celled organism back to life. Researchers aboard the drill ship, oh my goodness, JOIDES, J-O-I-D-E-S, uh, an acronym, Resolution Collection Sediment Samples from the Bottom of the Ocean 10 Years Ago. The samples came from 328 feet or 100 meters below the surface, uh, below the 200-foot depth bottom of the South Pacific gyre. 
That's the region of the Pacific Ocean where very few nutrients and little oxygen available for life to survive on. Researchers were looking for data on how microbes get along in such remote parts of the world. One main question is whether life could exist in such a nutrient-limited environment or if this is a lifeless zone. Uh, Yuki Monroe, a scientist from the Japanese Agency of Marine Earth Science and Technologies and lead author of a new paper on microbes, said in the statement, we wanted to know how long the microbes could sustain their life in a near absence of food. The results indicated that even cells found in 101.5 million old year old sediment samples are capable of waking up when oxygen and nutrients become available. At first I was skeptical, but we have found that up to 99.1% of the microbes in sediment deposited 101.5 million years ago were still alive and were ready to eat. The microbes had ceased all noticeable activity, but when offered nutrients and other necessities of life, they became active again. To make sure the sample wasn't contaminated with modern microbes, the researchers cracked open the sediment in a highly sterile environment, selecting the microbial cells present, feeding them nutrients exclusively, a tiny tube designed not to allow in contaminants. The cells responded, many of them quickly. They quickly gobbled up the nitrogen and the carbon. Within 68 days, the total cell count had quadrupled from the original 6,986. Aerobic bacteria, oxygen breathers, were the hardest cells, hardiest cells, and most likely to wake up. These tiny organisms were surviving, were surviving on just the tiny bubbles of air that made their way down into the sediment over geologic timescales. It seems that metabolic rate of aerobic bacteria is just slow enough to allow them to survive in such extended periods. Paper was published July 28th in the Journal of Natural Communications. That's interesting. What I take on that is that means that uh, that particular life is a little bit hardier than maybe what we had even believed. And it seems like any underwater event, say you have a shift of plates that exposes these microbes back to the surface, which would happen across the ocean many times in a year, that we're constantly recycling millions of year old microbes and bring them back into the environment. So it seems like that'd be a new area of research for somebody to really dig into. And then down here in the South Africa, uh, they're wondering where the sharks have gone. They said not long ago there were 200 more annual sightings in South Africa's False Bay, the most famous of sharks. The sheer number gathering around one island off the stunning curve of sand just east of the Cape of Good Hope and the city of Cape Town made it a great white capital of the world. This year, a single shark has been seen. Last year, not one. We need to keep watching to work out what's changed and why and when they may come back. For now, we are still really hopeful the sharks will return, said Sarah Waries of Shark Spotters, an organization largely funded by local authorities to monitor populations of great whites in False Bay and watch over the beaches. For Greg, oh my goodness, Olus, the absence of great white could be the most dramatic environmental change he's seen in 20 years as a conservation biologist in the area. It could be a massive loss for Cape Town. They are such a big part of the environment. 
our sense of place and identity here. It would be a tragedy if they never came back. Great whites are important for the economic as well as environmental reasons. They are part of a $2 billion a year tourist industry. As much of the attraction as Cape's Vineyards, Game Reserves, Fine Dining, or Table Mountain, the tour company taking visitors out on boats to view the sharks and lowering them the cages of the seafloor for close encounters employs hundreds in a country that suffers from acute lack of jobs. Though there's still other sharks to view, the absence of crowd-drawing great whites is a challenge to an industry seen by some as leading example of successful ecotourism. Experts began to notice decline in great whites about five years ago and remain divided in the reason for their absence from false space. Some have suggested the arrival of 2015 of orcas, another apex predator that attacked sharks, forced even great whites to retreat. Two orcas named Port and Starboard have been repeatedly in the false bay for most of last month. Carcasses of large great whites have been found with evidence the orcas killed them for their livers. Uh, he said that the orca's arrival could be a factor, but is not seen as the only reason for great white absences. Instead, researchers suggest the population of great whites has been in free fall for many years. Dr. Sarah Andrade, of a marine biologist with the Stellenbosch University, who has been studying South Africa's great whites for more than a decade, estimated in 2012 there's no more than 522 off South Africa's coastline. Uh her research also showed that South Africa's great whites were not sufficiently genetically diverse to cope easily with new threats. These range from possible pollution, such as heavy metals entering the food chain, possible damaging sharks' rep reproductive systems, to the impact of long-line fishing boats have taken a huge number of fish from the waters east of False Bay in recent years. Great white sharks have been protected since 1991 in South Africa, but other shark species that provide much of their diet or not. You cannot protect a predator without protecting its food. Sharks are not sardines. They are very slow to reproduce. You can fish, but you have to do it in a sustainable way. It'll be less profitable in the short term, but not to crash the entire environment and the industry. Chris Fallows, a respected spark, uh, shark expert and guide based close to Cape Town, is in no doubt that longline fishing was responsible for the disappearance of the great whites. He said population of two species to provide much food for the great whites has collapsed. If you stop the the dermsole shark long-lining, long -lining, there is a, every evidence that they will come back, but not in a hurry. The marine ecosystem has been intact for millions of years, and in the space of five years, we've laid it to waste. And they go on and talk about some more. So it, it, it goes to reason that you know, one one form of them being eliminated is just physically you you kill them off, you fish them, or you remove their food source, or they feel threatened. And it sounds like there's a little bit of all three going on going on there. So that's something that we'll have to watch and see how that plays out. A Tokyo Aquarium needs your FaceTime to help out. They have some shy eels. Coronavirus shutdowns are hard on everyone, including the eels. Uh, an aquarium in Tokyo has made an unlikely request, asking people to video call the organization's 300 garden eels. Keepers of the aquarium posted videos on social media showing the eels hiding in their burrows whenever people approached, and they asked the public for help. Now the aquarium is 
facilitating FaceTime calls to the eel tank to help the animals stay used to people. And here's how they're saying it works. Uh, oh. So here's how it works. And the next paragraph makes no sense. Uh, so the, the the article goes in and they talk about all the, the marine animals they have. Uh, 10,000 marine animals from 400 species. Uh, they said the aquarium welcomed visitors every day, so the eels were accustomed to humans. Typically, the species of eels is cautious around humans, diving in the sand whenever someone approaches. Since March 1st closures, keepers noticed that the garden eels were hiding when people approached. Keepers must be able to inspect the eels to monitor health and breeding, which is difficult when they hide from people. The aquarium came up with a unique solution. Invite people to FaceTime the eels so once again become accustomed to seeing humans. Five tablets are set up along the tank where the eels are kept. Everyone is invited to call with an iPad or an iPhone between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And the dates that they were trying it out on was May 3rd to the 5th. Uh, anticipating popularity calls, people are asked to spend only about five minutes before letting someone else have a turn FaceTiming. These tiny eels have been popular in Japan for years. Video sharing websites live stream more than 100 hours of eels from 2014 to nearly 800,000 viewers. In 2014, a couple got married in front of the eel tank and even had an eel-themed cake. Uh, and then they give some instructions. So what do you think? Uh, do you think they're shy? Do you think this works? Uh, I'm, you know, my dogs really don't pay attention to TV. I'm I'm not sure that eels are going to do the same thing. Are a bunch of pixels lighting up and down and, and changing going to be enough for an eel to recognize and what kind of eyesight does Neil have? Uh, I, I'm going to say I think it's probably more just the natural environment. You know, any anything can become desensitized to activity. I'm going to guess it might be more just the vibrations of people moving around, or the the shadows and lights coming through than specifically an eel recognizing a human's face. But then again, I'm not a eel specialist. And then some local scuba divers explore Fall River. And I'll put this into the chat room. And when they say local, I don't know local from where. Uh, Rexburg Standard Journal. So where is that? That is in Idaho, Rexburg, Idaho. When it comes to scuba diving, Fall River may not be the first place most people think of. Yet of late, it's become increasingly popular scuba diving site among local divers. Uh, the river they usually dive in no longer allows swimming due to COVID-19. Earlier this month, uh, Brody Talbot of Reary, Eric Ivan of Ashton, and Darren Walters of Idaho Falls tried diving at Yellowstone Park Firehole River but turned away because of the virus. I was telling the guy, hey, I'm breathing ultra-clean air, have a mask on underwater. He wasn't having any part of that. We salvaged a day at Fall River. Later today, divers trained and certified in various scuba diving equipment. You'll be amazed how much good diving there is at Fall River. The visibility is really good, believe it or not, and it's fun. Divers often get odd looks and questions about why they're scuba diving in Fall River and not from some exotic island in the Mediterranean. Swimmers are awful startled when divers suddenly appear on the water, water Talbot said. Now that's, that's telling me that they don't, they don't have dive flags. When come popping up and when they're swimming and scare them half to death, we've been underwater for two hours in a tank without ever coming up. Since Firehole River was closed to divers, 
Ivy said the group has looked for places to dive that are closer to home. Fall River's a poor man's fire hole, I guess. It's a lot closer and it makes it a lot easier. Scuba diving is relaxing and therapeutic, Ivy said. You get to be alone with your thoughts. You hear nothing but bubbles. You enjoy 75% of the earth-covered water. You get to see more than most people ever do, he said. Walter said he likes everything about scuba diving. I like just being away from people and the peace and the quiet. While Idaho isn't considered a mecca of scuba diving, it's become increasingly popular here, said diver Ashley Stewart, formerly of Ashton Stewart, and her husband, Brett, own Idaho Dive Pirates in Idaho Falls. There's been an increase in interest with the whole COVID-19 thing. People have been interested in playing around a little bit and doing different things, she said. Once a month, Stewart teaches scuba diving class to 10 people at a time. Students practice their scuba diving skills at Idaho Falls Aquatic Center or at the Riri Reservoir. In the winter months, the classes participate at the Utah Geothermal Pond. It's not that hot. It's nice and toasty and warm, Ashley said. Ashley and her fellow divers have been known to dive throughout southern Idaho from Island Park to Jenny Lake. Basically, anything that's out there, and that's what we're about to do. It's all about the treasure hunt. And then she talks about on one diving adventure, they came across 1930s trade token. We found uh, the one, we found one that was only the fifth one known in existence. It was a $500 token in of itself, she said. Talbot says Fall River is also full of lost treasure. He has found digital cameras, a motorcycle, a truck at the bottom of the river. The truck has been there for years. What's left is mostly a frame. Seatbelt is still there, and the license plate is still there, he said. Talbot isn't sure how vehicle wound up at the bottom of the river. There is no way for that truck to have gotten where it is. It's pretty mangled up. It's been there a really long time. I bet it's there over 50 years. Talbot runs a recovery service biz, uh, via his business, Friendly Motors and Marine, where he does towing and underwater recovery. As a result, he and his fellow divers routinely study different water rescue scenarios to help them in a water emergency. Um, so, hey, great. I mean, what, what better than getting out and getting underwater? Not much. And then the last one, and I was kind of wishing we had Mac in for here because this is one that he gave. Uh, this one is about bog snorkeling, and I had never heard of bog snorkeling. Sounds a little bog crazy. Uh, it says, you, can you beat the bog? Bog snorkeling weekender. It's a 60-meter swim in a peat bog. And if you want to do that, you head to Mid-Wales in August for a unique test of endurance. That's when the world title's up for grabs. And then they also have a challenging bog triathlon. Uh, you get down and dirty as a competitor or simply watching brave athletes at their limits. It's one of the most enduring and unusual events. Like many of history's greatest ideas, the World Bog Snorkeling Championship was initially conceived in a pub, specifically the Newid Arms in a nice Welsh name, Landwort Wells, and usually there's a few more syllables that I didn't pronounce, in a small town in mid-Wales upland. It's in its 33rd year. This unorthodox event is an unmistakable or an unmissable part of the sporting calendar, uh, but they said don't take their word for it. Uh, Lonely Planet described as one of the top 50 must-do experiences. More than three decades since its inception, the Bog World Championship now attracts competitors from as far afield as Sweden, Germany, Czech Republic, and even Australia. 
So let's see. The choice of option is competition. The triathlon, the length is 60-meter bog, uh, bog trench bookended by an 8-mile run and a 12-mile mountain bike ride. There's a bit-sized version, which is a 3-mile run and a 6-mile ride, plus the obligatory dip in the bog, which is ideal for the younger, less hardened competitors. When it turns, uh, 150 elite bog snorkelers each trying to swim the murky trench cut uh, in the bog as fast as they possibly can. The time to beat is as English swimmer Christy Johnson, who completed the course in a world record 1 minute 22.6 seconds back in 2014. For those less inclined to take the plunge, it's an option to simply enjoy the fun with the local ale and watch other people get stinky. If you prefer style over speed, there's even a fancy dress section, which is awarded for the best costumes. In previous years, the uh, pantomime horse was argu- arguably the difficult, the most difficult to snorkel in, closely followed by a man with an ironing board who is simultaneously competing in another quirky international sport for extreme ironing. Windride Bog is located in a mile outside of uh, Little Laurent Wells, and it's easily walkable from town. However, if you want to reserve your strength to tackle the bog's murthy waters, there's also a convenient shuttle bus. For spectators, there's plenty of food, stalls, a bouncy castle, live music, real ale, and cider you expect from an event birthed in a local pub. Uh, and they go on to talk about some other events that they have in the area. Some cool photos in this, and uh, the fancy dress is kind of cool. Uh, I'm wondering if that is still going to happen this year or not. Uh, I mean, they are—they do have face masks on. Yeah, that's yeah, the chat room. Uh, I bet that smells great, and it'll get worse as the event continues. That, that would be, uh, around here we call mud bogs, uh, but usually they're, they're motored. So, well, that does it for Scuba News. We ripped right through that quite quickly. Uh, as far as anybody getting into the water, I know that the Mud Club was able to get in a thankful, or is it thankful Tuesdays? I don't even know the name of the, but they got in the river and uh, they had quite a good turnout and a lot of people pulling up bottles of a variety. I, I'm hoping to get into the water this weekend. I have some plans. Uh, and so I've I've decided to lower my expectations for weekend accomplishments to make sure I can get in a dive. So, oh Eric, uh, who must have been there said thankful, thankful Tuesdays was a fun dive. We're, we're getting that time of year where it it's almost perfect for diving wherever you go. Um, and I'm I'm wondering how visibility has been. Fifteen feet, that's pretty good. So they had 15 feet. Sometimes what happens if a, if we wait too much longer, the water temperatures are getting up there, uh, you can get some algae blooms. So we've been a little bit low on the rain compared to other parts of the season. We have had last two or three days some, some weather. So uh, rivers could start to pick up some flow and debris. And then some of the inland ponds are probably going to have some algae blooms if they haven't already. Well, I think we're going to shut this one short with me just being the only one here, but I do have a bunch of scuba jokes. So let me see. I, I've, I've stocked them up. 
uh, I like to let them age. It's kind of like you put them in a cast cask and, uh, you know, let them ferment a little bit, you know, throw a little sugar on there, get the, the yeast fermenting them over. Um, and I'm just kind of browsing to see which one is, is appropriate. Uh, well, let's see, let's, let's go ahead and do this one. In the great desert, there lived a bunch of nomads. Their leader, Benny, had risen to the ranks, and due to his magnificent beard, his people believed the man's strength and courage came from his beard, and thus the man with the biggest beard was their chief. Leading the band for many years, Benny began to feel uncomfortable wearing beards. It was hot in a dusty land. He wanted to shave it off, so he called the council together to get their advice. When he said what he wanted to shave, the councilmen were shocked. One said, do you remember how the ancient legend dire? The leaders removed the beard is cursed and made into a piece of earthenware. Benny had heard the legend, but being a modern man, he scoffed at the tale. Being headstrong, he went ahead and cut and scraped away his once magnificent beard. As the final whisker was cut, a huge dust storm came up. It lasted only a few seconds, and when it cleared, there was a man-sized clay vessel where only moments before had stood their leader. The council then knew the legend must be true in their conclusion. A Benny shaved is a Benny earned. I almost have to apologize for that. So, uh, yeah, if, if you're not getting in the chat room, you're missing out. So, until ne- next week, go out there and get wet and stay safe. <laughs>